Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible leaders from around the globe. These are people who are right at the very top end of everything that they do. They truly have practiced leadership uh, for a long while and at the very highest level. Today I'm joined by an extraordinary leader, somebody who I've been trying to get onto the podcast for a while now. Uh, Michael Pitfield is the membership advisor of the Society of Leadership Fellows based at St George's House in Windsor Castle. Now if there was a high point of mine throughout the year it was the fact that uh, I was invited to become a fellow of this society. 250 people from around the world are selected to join this society so it's a huge accolade for me uh, and Michael was instrumental in me becoming a member. Uh, Michael has got an incredible leadership career started in 1978 as he was appointed to the board of the Chartered Institute of Personal Development at the age of 27 and he was responsible for membership and education later on to become uh, responsible for strategy and policy at the CIPD for 12 years, then went on to join the board of Henley Business School for 16 years, director of international business, uh, going all over the world, not that I'm jealous at all, uh, and then he went on to continue as a board member emeritus of an American organization based, based over in Minnesota and an honorary member of a European organization based in Brussels. He took early retirement in back in 2006 but didn't stop working, well why would you? Uh, instead he started his own company to become an executive coach and business mentor which he finally put to one side in 2020 but he has been a membership advisor at the Society of Leadership Fellows since 2017. Michael, that was a bit of a mouthful, but I needed to do your leadership journey some justice. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Looking forward very much to talking to you, Cool. Well, I have been looking forward to talking to you for some while. I really have, Michael. Uh, you've been on this leadership journey since 1978, and I've had the huge pleasure of meeting you, and I get a sense of where you're coming from when it comes to leadership, which is one of the reasons sort of why I wanted you on this program. Just so our listeners can get a gauge, a sense of why you are still in the leadership space and why you've, you know, continuously been in that space since 1978. What is it about leadership that impassions you? It's uh, something we've talked about before, Cool, that uh, it's about bringing other people on. And if you're in the fortunate position of being a leader, as I have been, you see lots of people who have potential but sometimes they don't realize they've got that potential and sometimes they don't have the opportunity to fulfill their potential. So I think a key role of being a leader is bringing other people on, leaders of tomorrow, future leaders, giving them those chances and 
giving back your experience to help them grow and prosper. I think that sort of sums up in a nutshell, far more eloquently than I could, everything that I feel about leadership, you know, and it's it's what gets me up in the morning. And I think you're so right. Yet so many organisations, Michael, and so many leaders that I have met in my journey have not grasped the responsibility or the philosophy of leadership. And one of the things that we talk about in the society is is about depth, depth of leadership. And I think one of the, the fundamental of leadership in order for us to be the very best leaders that we can be we really need to know ourselves so there's a lot of work that you do around self-awareness and really understanding who you are your values Uh, do you want to just tell me about where that has all come from what 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 have you done to become more self-aware well i I think it uh, you reflect a lot as you go through your career and as you've implied earlier i've changed direction in my career uh, several times quite sharp changes of direction as well. And I started off my my career, I was a humble lecturer at a college, but um, I became very angry with this college, this postgraduate course I was running, it qualified people to be members of the CIPD. Right. And, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, at that time, I felt that the CIPD didn't really give a toss about its members and... uh, and the students who were, you know, hard working, looking for this qualification. And I, I felt quite outraged by this. Hmm. And I think it was that sense of outrage of organizations that didn't foster development and didn't care for their people and were bureaucratic that made me have this almost missionary zeal, which I found within myself to try and do something as a leader to bring on other leaders. That should be a real driver for so many leaders out there. Uh, So essentially, you are one of the original disruptors in the leadership space, really, I guess. (laughs) I certainly was as far as the CIPD was concerned at that time. So as I say, this was a bureaucratic organisation and so on. And uh, I, I got together with some other people who were running similar courses around the country, people in Leeds, Leicester and so on. And we sort of formed a, a sort of revolutionary cabal. <laughs> but what was funny, we, we, we got some leeway with this. We were successful. We got followers. And, and we forced the CIPD to change. But, of course, what, what can happen in such situations is that the revolutionaries of yesterday become the establishment of today. So I, I was asked to join the board of the CIPD. Two other people became vice presidents on a voluntary basis and so on. So we came, we became the establishment of the CIPD. But that was wonderful because from my point of view, it gave me every opportunity to enforce the sort of changes that I thought should be happening. At that time, the CIPD had students, members uh, across the UK, but also in the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. So the Republic of Ireland, an independent country, but the CIPD made no concessions to that. The poor students there had to learn about English law, England employ- English employment law and practices and so on, which was completely irrelevant to them in their country. So I thought, well, what can we do about this? So cut a long story short, I went to Dublin. I met with a guy called Pedrak McDermott, who was the head of the National Council for Educational Awards in Ireland. And I always remember, he was a great guy. And uh, we were in his office, he said, oh, this is hopeless. Why don't we go to the pub and sort this out? So we went to the pub. And what we did is we got him to his organization to create a postgraduate diploma in personal management, as it was then, 
And we at the CIPD would give recognition to that as exemption to our qualification. So it was based entirely on our syllabus, but everywhere it said English law, they substituted Irish law. Easy solution. But it, it made that gesture, you see. So I think as a leader, you have to be prepared to do dramatic things, push things through, meet the other person halfway. And there's a good example of how it works. I was, I was a hero in Ireland after that. <laughs> I'm not surprised either. I mean, how ridiculous does it sound to have to have to do, you know, uh, study another country's law to get a qualification in your own country makes no sense. Uh, but also what this demonstrates for me, Michael, is how sometimes what we have to do is cut through the, 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 the fog of bureaucracy that exists to arrive at a common sense solution. I've, I've seen this happen in so many organisations. I've, I've done it myself as a leader where I used to get really frustrated about some of the bureaucratic policies that existed uh, in my old organisation of the police service. So I would cut short, take shortcuts to get to you know a sensible solution at the end of it all and yet this still exists in so many organizations don't you think that uh, sometimes we are so fearful of taking courageous leadership the right leadership decisions so we hide behind policies and you must have seen that within the whole sort of uh, HR environment because I think it exists a lot within the HR environment. Oh, very much so. I, I'm interested you pick up the word fear because that's what I was going to say had you not mm. said it, that it's all about fear. People covering themselves, you know, comfort in procedures. And one of my mantras is that a lot of this, uh, what I call the paraphernalia, paraphernalia of human resources, actually gets in the way of good management and good working with people and, and good leadership as well. And if as, you, as a leader you're self-confident enough and, and uh, willing to challenge that, you can have huge effects. So don't, don't let the, the bureaucracy and the procedures draw you in and overwhelm you. Stand up against them. I think when it comes to HR, there are two types of individuals. And we've had, I, I know some incredible HR people, HR directors, HR managers, who look in the widest possible context and look to uh, arrive at people-based decisions to get the very best out of people and the very best for the organisation. But by the same token, we also have HR people and leaders who simply hide behind this, this whole barrage of policies, procedures, regulations, legal frameworks that perhaps they don't really need to do. And it slows down the decision-making process. And sometimes it, it, it actually... Um, it actually creates a barrier between the leadership of an organization and the people who actually get things done in an organization. And it creates mistrust. How funny you end with mistrust, because I was going to say it's all about trust. I think a very good example at the moment is this business of working at home and some companies seeking to monitor what people are doing while they're working at home. I think that's outrageous. My philosophy has always been trust your people if you trust them and give them as much responsibility as they're able to cope with, they will reward you by working hard. Because I believe that the vast majority of people, they want to do a good job, they want to excel at it, they want to please their employer. They don't want to cheat and lie and cut corners. So if you trust them, you'll get much, much more out of them. And they will grow themselves to be better managers, whatever, better people in whatever job they do, because they've got that self-confidence that you're engendering in them. You can say, I get 
bad evangelical about this. No, I think I think you've touched on something really, really powerful, uh, and it's very timely because I think we're living through some really interesting times just le- uh, over the last two years. You know, we've obviously been through exceptional experiences as a world, and you know, with the things like the Great Resignation, what we've seen now is that people have recalibrated their priorities, uh, and people now feel that monetary recompense, wages, salaries are just not enough of a, a an incentive to work well they want more from an employer so what do you sense that people are looking for from their employers you know we, we you know we, i think we've got something like 1.3 million vacancies in the country alone we've got more vacancies than people in the job market so all these organizations are competing in this ever decreasing fish pond how can they get the best talent what is it that the talent is looking for well, I think there it relates to what I said before. I think that people want to be trusted to do a good job. And it's not about, you know, whether you're there in the office between nine to five or whether you're logged on to your computer all day. It's, it's being able to say, well, I will do the job, the level you want. I will do it, but I'll do it in my own way and my own time. So if an employer can accept that sort of uh, approach, then it, it will reap huge benefits for them and everybody will be happy. Yeah, and you must have worked with all sorts of organizations. You're a business coach and a, a business mentor, rather, and an executive coach. So you must have worked with a lot of leaders in terms of getting their leadership principles right, their leadership philosophy right, uh, or even their organizational culture. So what were the key things that you managed to achieve that actually shifted the way that an organization or the leadership sector within the organization thought? One of the most common things when I was doing the business mentoring and, and the coaching of the boards and so on was that quite a few of them, they didn't have a clear direction of where they were going. You know, they, were, they were busy running the company, doing the job and so on. They were, were thinking, well, they weren't thinking, well, I'm on this travel or this escalator, but where is it actually going? And I encourage them to stop, step off the travelator, go to one side and think about your strategy, your plan, your objective for the next five years. And if you can do all that, and it becomes a rolling process that you then review every year, then you will have a much better idea and a much better leadership uh, flag that you can carry and get your people rallied behind that flag because you're leading them. This is a really powerful point that you're making here and I think it uh, correlates with the whole self-awareness as well. I, I think so many leaders and businesses out there that I, I interact with, when I speak to the leaders that they're stressed, they're working at 100 miles an hour, they, they, they haven't or they perceive that they don't have the time to look out of the window to see where they're at or where they're going indeed as you say. Um, so it's so important, isn't it, to actually, using a football analogy, to put a foot on the ball to look at all the best players will put a foot on the ball every now and then and they will look around them to say, hey, where do I kick this football to? Where Who do I pass it to? And unless we're doing that in our working environments, then the chances are we'll probably kick the football in the wrong direction. There's a good chance of that. Yeah, absolutely. People say to me, well, what is a leader? And I say, well, the first thing, by implication, a leader has followers. So you've got to inspire those followers, your staff, your people in your company or whatever. You've got to inspire them and give them a very clear idea of what they do fits into where you're taking the company. Once all that's 
clear, everything else more or less falls into place because they know what's expected of them. And they want to meet those objectives. Coming back into the whole element of trust, how would you, and I absolutely agree with you, by the way, that trust is like, for me, the foundational element that you need to create in an organization unless you have trust all the other issues around communication around uh, team uh, collaboration around values you can't really build those unless you have that foundation of trust so what would you say that any organization if, if there are leaders listening into this program right now and thinking hey how can i create more trust what would be the takeaways that you would suggest what work could they do to build more trust in their organizational team the one word i would use is responsibility give people responsibility as much as they can possibly carry because that gives them the opportunity to show what they can do all right they'll make mistakes inevitably but that doesn't matter you learn from your mistakes. I never told anybody off from making mistakes. I said, well, what can we learn from that? So if you give people responsibility, it, it, it brings them up to their top level and you're trusting them in things which they perhaps thought they would never be able to do. So I think a key word is uh, responsibility. As a, as a gold commander in all sorts of high, high stakes situations, um, I had to rely on my staff to, to fulfill the strategy that I might have developed. And of course, we're all imperfect, aren't yeah. we? So not everything will have gone smoothly. Somebody might have made a bit of a mistake. One thing that I always did at the end of every single operation Operation was to carry out a debrief but what I made sure that in that debrief what is it was a blame free environment it was a learning environment and I think you know a lot of organizations still suffer with this blame culture yeah, yeah I know that so many have talked about you know we need to eradicate this blame culture but then I see it, it re resurface so what do we do? How do we get rid of this blame culture? What, what, what have you been your experiences about, you know, how some organizations might have got uh, eradicated this blame culture? Well, what, what I found, not, not only in my own experience, but other people I know as well, it is to just be entirely open, encourage everybody to be open. So that the staff member who makes the mistake can come to you and say, look, boss, I really made a mistake. I messed up here. And that is much better than seeking to avoid or to hide mistakes and errors. And then if you as the boss can say, well, fine, we learn from that. You know, there's no, no blame. We, we, what, what can we sit down together and learn from this experience of that mistake that you've owned up to? And then everybody profits and, and you get away from this uh, blame culture. A very good example about it from a company I knew. The CEO there was very like us. He had the same approach as us. And he put notices up around the place. No moaning here. If you've got a problem, come and talk about it. And I thought that was a great thing to do. I love that. I, I, I used to have a boss that used to say, he used to have written on his door, uh, on his door uh, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Bring me solutions. But yeah. I like I like that. And you know, some people say, oh, he's, he's a real dinosaur. And I say, well, actually, is he? Because what he's saying is, uh, stop thinking and focusing in on the problem. Take a step back and think around the problem. Say, what is the solution? Now, he used to say, I don't care how stupid your solutions are. Just bring me the solutions. And eventually we'll come to a a solution that we all agree to agree on but i think the other thing that you've just touched upon there is this issue around vulnerability 
Now, I had a conversation with somebody not so very long ago, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was a leadership conversation, and he was saying, you know, I think that we've got a real problem in in the leadership circles right now. In most organizations, you still have hierarchical structures of leadership. And wherever you've got these hierarchical structures, you will have game playing going on. Uh, If your focus is always on people and performance, then people are always going to be worried about how they are being perceived by other people. So consequently, your leaders are not going to show any vulnerability. And if they don't show vulnerability, you're going to have a lack of transparency. If you have a lack of transparency, you'll have a lack of trust. And I was trying to unpack that in my mind. I thought, yeah, actually, when you make, when you think that through, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And I think we still have a lot of leaders around and so many organizations. And that says something about the cultures that exist within organizations where leaders themselves are pretend that they have to be, uh, be, be believe that they have to be invulnerable. They have to present this image of invulnerability. But the truth is, all human beings are vulnerable to some level or another. I mean, one of my favorite phrases was, uh, I used to sit my team down and say, hey, I might be the leader, but I don't hold a monopoly on good ideas. So let's have some good ideas. All these leaders who might be listening to this uh, program right now, they'll say, it's all very well saying that, but how how can I be uh, vulnerable? How can I have the courage to demonstrate my vulnerability. What do you think that we could say to them? What I think to say there is, as a leader, you know your team, you know the strengths and the weaknesses of your team. And equally, hopefully, you know your own strengths and weaknesses as well. So it goes back to what I said about responsibility. So what I would say there, if there was an area where I as a leader was uncertain about something, I'd look around and think, well, this this guy over here, he knows a bit about this. And I'd invite him to give his idea, table his proposals and so on, so that you can build on this in a collegiate way rather than the the all-powerful boss who knows it all and nobody else knows anything. That's what you need to get away from. The leader is sort of the first among equals in a way, if you think of a board. Everybody around a board's got uh, ideas. You don't want to be surrounded by yes men. You want people who are going to challenge you, who are going to come forward with their ideas, and you have a good debate about it and come up with a good solution. That is so powerful. And I think I think the whole issue around the all-powerful boss, that coercive, commander control, uh, dominating kind of uh, leader, leadership style is probably on the way oh, now. Oh, very much. So, um, yeah. I, I, think, I think more and more people now understand that leaders need to be visionary, they need to be transformational, they need to demonstrate vulnerability, they need to be human. Uh, and, and I think more and more people understand that. I think it was back in 2016 that the World Economic Forum actually said that uh, by 2020, ironically, uh, the number one skill set that organisations will be looking for in their new talent is going to be emotional intelligence. And here we are. Of course, what happened in 2020? Maybe triple that, quadruple that, timed it by 10. Uh, and I think we are now more looking at who is this person sitting in front of me rather than what skills or what qualifications has this person got sitting in front of me. Uh, and I think we've made this like 180 degree turn almost. So those those leaders out there who still rely upon this command and control coercive style of leadership, I think they're going to be on the way and they'll soon find themselves minoritized. Uh, and the, the world has shifted on its axis, really, when it comes to leadership. I was just uh, coaching somebody recently, the CEO of a company, 
And uh, he, he, he wasn't command and control, but he said, what worries me is when we're discussing something in the board, you know, I'll, I'll say something and they all agree with me. And I said, <laughs> and he said, that's not what I want. How can I deal with that? And I said, well, a good, a good idea is if you've got a particular issue and you want to discuss it in the board, table the issue and say, well, let's take a break. All go away for 15 minutes. Think about this issue. And let's come back and see what each of you have come up with as, as possible solutions to this. And so I'll do the same, but I won't go first. Let's, and, and he found that transformed it because it got over this idea of groupthink. But because the boss was saying, I think this, or how about this? Oh, yes, yes. Get away from groupthink. Get everybody to put in their input. So that was a, a very small tactic. Go away for 15 minutes, think about it, come back. And it worked in this particular case anyway. That, that's quite interesting because that also f uh, touches upon something else that I'm really passionate about uh, in the area of diversity. I very often talk about cognitive diversity. And that's where you eliminate or eradicate this, men this environment of groupthink or the echo chambers uh, where everybody thinks the same. Uh, and you need to encourage diversity of thought. Uh, and, and, and for me, I would far rather go for cognitive diversity as a target for an organization than demographic diversity, i.e. how many black, brown, female, uh, transgender people have you got in the organization? Uh, there is little point in having those if they all think the same. So I would encourage diversity of thought where people can come to the table with their own experiences and be allowed to express those experiences. And I think that's how we get really vibrant meetings. But those are, I don't know if you've ever read the book. I'm sure you have. Edward de Bono's Six Thinking, Thinking Hats. Yes, yes. That, yes. I, I've always used that as a clever way when people all come up with the same idea. I'll say, okay, hang on a minute. So, okay, you're going to wear the black hat. All I want you to do is think about and express the negative elements of what we're proposing. You've got the yellow hat. You just think about the creative. And I find that something like that really gets a meeting going. Can you, and it can make it, can make it quite transformational in that sense. Well, that's right. It's a very good. I, I find it a very amusing example of this. Do you remember at the uh, the last election, the Labour Party came up with this Ed Stone, you know, the, the, the policies of the Labour Party were carved in stone. I think that was a classic example of groupthink. You know, nobody around the table said, hang on a minute, guys, is this really a good idea? And that's what you're talking about. You want... Uh, people to challenge the idea before it gets set in stone, if you'll excuse the pun. Just to pick up on you once what you said about diversity, I'm a great believer and passionate about diversity as well, as you know from the society. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that one of our fellows actually said the other day was that it's all very well having tick boxes and having this many LGBT people, this many black brown people and so on, this many women. That ticks the boxes. But are the are the people, the leaders, are they listening to what these people say? If you're you know, if you've got a, a team and you have perhaps one black member on it or whatever, and uh, they're there. Do you actually listen to what they say? Do you regard their participation on a par with everybody else? Or have you just ticked the box and they're on the board, so we're fine? Do you understand what I mean? Absolutely. And so it, it can come across quite tokenistic if you're not careful. Exactly. And what I loved about the society was at my last uh, meeting with the society, that there was a vibrancy in the room that people came with. Uh, 
own individual journeys, experiences, but they had the same space to be able to express yes, that. Yes. And I found myself wondering, goodness gracious, imagine if we were all on an executive board of an organization what would that organization be like yes. because it was that it was that level of impactive for me and i think that if we uh if we focus on having these cognitively diverse boards or we allow people to express their journey express their experience i just think the organization will get so much more and it's not just a board level this is across the organization if you want a vibrant organization then i think vibrant organizations are the ones that are going to survive and thrive in this new world i think we have to allow we have to try and do away with groupthink and echo chambers and and this stuff around setting stone i think that's dangerous actually because if the world is moving on then if you're going to be stuck in a thought process that you had that was relevant 30 40 50 years ago then what does it say about where you are right now and this i think is one of the problems again with a lot of recruitment processes they look for degrees, qualifications, and so on. I, I, I never paid much attention to that. Not, obviously, you want people who are qualified to do the job, but there are lots of ways of being qualified. But in the end, my decisions were based on, well, what sort of person is this? You know, are they enthusiastic? Have they got interpersonal skills? Can they express themselves well? They've got communication skills, empathy. Those were the things that were important. You could have any number of certificates on the wall, but those things I just mentioned, those are the things that really matter. Well, let me give you a great example on that. I, I was uh, approached by a, a general practice doctor surgery recently, uh, and over the last several years, they've had high levels of turnover. They've had staff underperforming. They've had disruptive staff. And they said, we don't know what we're doing. We're following the same recruitment processes that all the other GP surgeries are doing, but we seem to be uh, you know uh, attracting this toxic staff or underperforming staff uh, and then they leave we have a high quick turn uh, turnaround yeah. so i said okay let's try something else um, firstly let's review your your process just because you're copying another gp surgery doesn't mean it's right so let's review your processes but let's add to your processes let me carry out a behavioral uh, get every single candidate to complete a behavioral preferences profile so we know what their communication style is like and let me also get them to complete a questionnaire for uh, an emotional intelligence profile so we see where because I, I work with 26 competencies on emotional intelligence let's find out which one of these competencies are strong and which are weaker and as a consequence of that we were able to form a really strong picture they ended up hiring a load of uh, people and that practice has turned around its performance and I had a, a message from them not so long ago we've got the best staff that we've ever had right now and it feeds into what you're talking about there Michael that often we simply look at qualifications or IQ and I say look IQ might get you the job but what, once you're through the door, where, how you're going to excel is really dependent on what your levels of EQ are, what your emotional intelligence is going to be like, what your communication and relationship building skills are going to be like. I've got a good example of that, actually, from when I was at Henley Business School. I, was, I had a vacancy in the marketing department, and uh, for some reason, we didn't get many, many applications. And... Uh, the HR people came, and I, I think there were perhaps four or five applications, and I went through them, and uh, they said, well, we can rule out this guy because he hasn't got an appropriate degree. So I said, well, he's got a degree. 
uh, let's see him. Anyway, cut a long story short, I, I, I looked through them and I got this guy to come in for an interview. And straight away he said, I'm, I'm really surprised you see me. You saw me because I did a totally inappropriate degree. And I said, well, tell me about your degree. And he said, well, I was mad about pop music, so I did a degree in pop music. <laughs> but I want to be in marketing. Anyway, I, you know, I talked to, I talked to the guy, and he, he had everything I was telling you about, good communication skills, self-confidence, and so on. And uh, in, in the face of a lot of uh, opposition from HR, I took him on. I said, well, I'll give you a chance. I'm taking a chance here. You've got to deliver for me. And, you know, he turned out to be one of the best employees. He loved the job. And because of his uh, interest in music and so on, he played the saxophone. So when we had receptions and things, he used to play the saxophone in the background. So we got a double benefit out of it. And he, he was fantastic. He, he thrived in the job. I love people like that. I genuinely love people like that. You know, they're, they're different. They add something. They bring some different energy into your group. Because I also think the, the work environment has to be a fun environment. I, I love working course, with fun yeah. people, you know. And talking yeah. about fun, there's a different side to you as well, isn't there? One that we very often don't talk about. I understand you've been a bit of a film star in your past as well well a model and a film star <laughs> i did more modeling than filming but yeah that's true it was a long time ago uh, it is even before i was a college lecturer i, I was uh, i was uh, at university and you, I would, uh, it's a long story but i was able to do this in between uh, terms at university yeah uh, so yeah i did modeling and film work and so on but uh, the funny thing was it you never leave this and it, it, it happened a few years ago. They came back to me and they said, are you still doing the modeling? I said, well, what have you got in mind? Anyway, I won't go into all the detail, but they wanted to do a, a feature in the Daily Telegraph on how the older man can look good. Oh, wow. I think you'd be perfectly suited for that, Michael. 50 years later, I was modeling again. and It was, it was great fun, yeah. So are we likely to see you in some magazine or in a newspaper somewhere? Oh, it was. It, 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 it was about seven years ago. It was in the Daily Telegraph. But the original modeling and filming, that was in the swinging 60s. You know, I'm, wow. I'm quite old now. I'm 77 now. This was when I was a, a young man. <laughs> oh, you look amazing. So listen, have you, have you worked with any iconic people that we will all know about? You know, these like... Legends. Yeah, I was in a film called A Man for All Seasons about Sir Thomas More. And uh, so uh, Orson Welles was in it. Wendy Hiller was in it. Wow. Uh, Richard Shaw was in it. Robert Shaw, rather. So I met all of those. You know, when you're, when you're on a film set, you're all a team. And it doesn't matter whether you're the star or the errand boy. You're all part of the same team. So you get together and you're sitting around a lot. So you have a lot of fun. It's a great way to end the show because you're talking about in the context of filming how leadership and teamwork and team building is absolutely paramount. So all the things that we've talked about, Michael, I think you'll agree, is not just if you're sitting in an organization somewhere and you want the organization to perform better or feel better or be a nicer place to work. It's literally everywhere. Leadership for me is a universal skill set. It's applicable wherever you are, whether you're a parent, whether you're working in films, whether you're working in an organization, or indeed, even if you're a young person working still at school. There was one thing you asked me to think about uh, my advice to my younger self because that could, that could be relevant to other people and so I did think about this quite a bit and so my answer to that question would be be courageous be prepared to make dramatic changes don't take work too seriously 
and have a lot of fun even while you're at work sage advice indeed sage advice you know i often say to myself i wish i knew then what i knew now i wish i could turn the clock back by three decades with the wisdom that i've accumulated now of course that's never going to happen but hopefully some young person will be listening to this and actually say you know what i'm going to take on that that advice on board let's hope so thank you so much for being on the show michael it's been an absolute pleasure great fun to talk to you cool thank you thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day